Well, hello. Welcome back to the Through the Psalms podcast. I'm Wesley Provine. This week we're going to discuss Psalm 22. This is a psalm of David, and the superscription reads to the chief musician upon Ajaleth Shehar, a psalm of David. Now that strange phrase that I read to you uh, can be translated various ways. I've heard it translated the deer of the morning or the doe of the morning. I've also seen the hind of the dawn. Um, it probably refers to the name of the song or the music that the psalm is set to. So it refers to the, the name of the tune that the psalm is set to. Uh, as far as classifications go, this psalm actually has two classifications. It can be classified as a lament psalm. But it can also be uh, classified as a messianic psalm because this psalm has messianic prophecies and obvious references to Jesus in it, um, as we'll discuss later. So a lament psalm or a messianic psalm. Uh, Psalm 22 is the beginning of the shepherd psalms. If you remember from last episode, I mentioned that Psalms 22, 23, and 24 are called the shepherd psalms because they all deal with Jesus, the shepherd. Um, John 10.11 mentions the good shepherd who died for the sheep. Um, In Hebrews 13 and 20, it talks about that great shepherd of the sheep who takes care of the sheep as he's doing now. And then uh, 1 Peter 5.4 talks about when the chief shepherd shall appear again. And so uh, Jesus is called the shepherd in many places throughout the Bible. Uh, And these Psalms uh, reference that. Psalm 22 deals with Jesus on the cross, his death on the cross. And um, Warren Worsby refers to uh, this as the Savior's cross, Psalm 22. Psalm 23 Uh, talks about Christ's present ministry as he takes care of his sheep. And Warren Worsby refers to this as the shepherd's crook. And then, uh, because if you read Psalm 23, it mentions um, the the rod and the staff. And it has a lot of imagery of the shepherd. And then Psalm 24 uh, deals with the return of the shepherd. And Warren Worsby refers to this as the sovereign crown. So you have the Savior's cross, the shepherd's crook, and the sovereign crown. And each of those relate to Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. So I I thought that was interesting, and I wanted to share that with you. But Psalm 22 is very important. Uh, It's quoted by Jesus on the cross, the first verse of it where he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus quotes that as he's dying on the cross for our sins. Uh, Psalm 22 is referenced multiple times in the New Testament. There's prophecies of the crucifixion in this psalm. And, you know, this was written a thousand years before Christ died on the cross. And crucifixion was not a Jewish form of execution. It was a Roman form of execution. So uh, the only way to explain this is by divine revelation that 
David penned this psalm. Um, he wrote it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write this. And it's an actual prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's amazing to think about that. Now this psalm can be interpreted on two different levels. You can interpret it as a psalm of David. And and David is going through a difficult time and he's crying out to God. And so you can interpret it on that level. But then obviously it has these messianic uh, references and prophecies. So the other level is thinking about it as Christ's death on the cross. Uh, and a lot of scripture is that way, especially if you think about prophecy. Uh, you know, you think about Matthew 24 when Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and also about the end of the world. You kind of have to look at that chapter in two different levels. One, he's talking about the immediate fulfillment, the destruction of Jerusalem when Ro- the Romans came against um, Jerusalem and destroyed it and destroyed the temple. But then you also have to interpret it as a prophecy about the end of the world and the the second coming of Christ. And so a lot of scriptures, uh, you have to think about them on multiple levels. And that's, I think, the case here with Psalm 22. Now, as far as the outline goes, uh, verses 1 through 21, David describes the awful predicament that he's in. And verses 22 through 31 He praises God for his faithfulness. Now, Warren Worsby outlines this according to, uh, you know, Christ on the cross. Warren Worsby's outline is verses 1 through 21. He sees the crucifixion. Uh, Verses 22 through 26, 22 through 26, he sees the resurrection. And then verses 27 through 31, he sees the coronation of Christ. And in that last part, the coordination, he sees, uh, I'm sorry, he sees verse 22 talking about the church. He sees verses 23 through 26 talking about Israel. And then verses 27 through 31, um, Christ among the Gentiles. Uh, I should rephrase that. Verse 22, he sees Christ amongst the church. Verse 23 through 26, he sees Christ amongst Israel. And then verses 27 through 31, he sees Christ in the midst of the Gentiles. Okay, I should mention before we read this that the Jews uh, see connections between this psalm and the book of Esther. Um, the Jew- some Jewish people read Psalm 22 on the holiday of, Pur- of Purim and also on the fast of Esther. And I think the fast of Esther comes the day before the uh, holiday of Purim. But in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, some rabbis discuss Esther and Psalm 22. And when Esther was going to the king to plead for her people, and she's walking down the hallway, uh, which was filled with idols, some rabbis believe that Esther prayed the first verse as she walked down that hallway uh, and felt the presence of God leave her because she was going into an idolatrous place. So I just wanted to give a little background on the Jewish aspect of this psalm. Uh, 
But let's go ahead and read Psalm 22 and then we'll discuss it. All right, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him, it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Okay, well let's go ahead and look at verse 1. Here you have Christ on the cross, and this is quoted in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six and Mark fifteen thirty-four. And like I said before, Christ quotes this as he's dying on the cross. And so the question arises: Why was Christ forsaken? And I want to turn to Second Corinthians five twenty-one. 
And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that's speaking about Christ. The reason why Christ was forsaken on the cross was because he was our substitute. He had become our sin bearer. He was perfect. He was innocent and without sin. But when he died on the cross, God laid our sins upon him. And you can remember this from Isaiah 53 where it talks about this. But God laid our sins upon the innocent and perfect Christ and he bore our sins for us. And because of that, God had to punish Christ for our sins. And in, and in a way, he turned his face away from Christ during that moment as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And so he was forsaken by God the Father while he was on the cross as a punishment for our sins. And to think about that is very humbling and it should make us very grateful uh, for what Christ did for us. Now, when it quotes this verse in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, it says, And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So Jesus spoke it in the Aramaic, and then it gives the translation. And so here he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. Now the ninth hour was about 3 p.m. Uh, the, the way they did the time, the day started with 6 a.m. And so 9 a.m. would be the third hour, 12 noon would be the sixth hour, and then 3 p.m. would be the ninth hour. So he says this at the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. So he's been on the cross probably, it's probably been a six-hour ordeal. It probably started around 9 a.m. And so he's near death. He's suffered immensely. And he's bearing the weight of our sin. And so you can understand why he felt forsaken of God because he actually was for that time period on the cross forsaken of God the Father because he was paying for our sins. Now, um, in, at the end of verse 1, back in Psalm 22, it mentions the word roaring. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? That can be translated groaning. So he's groaning. Uh, he's in extreme physical pain. And he's dying on the cross and he feels completely forsaken. And so you get a picture of the suffering of Christ and what he went through on the cross just in this first verse alone. All right, well, let's move to verse 2. Uh, it says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. So again, he's saying he's praying to God, and God is not hearing. Um, you know, some commentators believe this referred to the darkness that came over 
the earth from the noon hour to 3 p.m. It says there in Matthew that darkness, um, I think it's Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. So from 12 noon to 3 p.m., darkness came upon the land as a sign of judgment because Christ was bearing our sin. And the judgment, the wrath of God was being poured out upon him. And so, you know, Christ says that he prayed in the daytime and he prayed at nighttime and and God was not hearing him. Some commentators believe that this night season could refer to when Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane um, the the night before. And so, uh, but regardless, the idea is that Christ is praying and and God doesn't seem to be hearing. And uh and or you could, you know, David, if you go back to David saying this, he he's going through a time when he's praying to God and, and God doesn't seem to be listening and, and doesn't seem to be answering his prayers. And you know, as a believer, few things are as frightening or discouraging as when you're praying and God doesn't seem to be answering. But that's what was happening here with Christ on the cross and also with David when he was writing this. All right, if we move on to verse 3, it says, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. The NIV in this verse says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, you are the praise of Israel. So God was still on his throne. Even though he's not answering or doesn't seem to be answering, God was still on his throne. And the idea or, or the, the fact that holiness is mentioned is, is important, I believe, because the reason why Christ had to die for our sins on the cross was because God is holy and he can't bear to look upon sin. He can't tolerate sin. He has to punish it. And that's the whole reason why Christ went to the cross, because God is holy. He hates sin. It has to be punished. But he also loved us and he didn't want us to suffer in hell for eternity He didn't want to destroy us. He wanted us to be saved. So he sent his son Christ, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to suffer that punishment for us. So holiness and mercy kind of meet together on the cross. You see God's holiness, his wrath, but you also see the mercy and the love of God at the same time. And that phrase inhabits the praises of Israel is interesting. God inhabits our praises. So when we praise him, his presence is among us. He loves for us to praise him and he inhabits the praises of his people. All right, moving along to verses four and five. uh, David talks about how um, previous generations in Israel had trusted in God and he had delivered them. They cried out to God and they were delivered. They trusted in him and they were not uh, ashamed or disappointed. And so it just talks about God's deliverance in the past. And I think it's important for us to remind ourselves uh, when we're going through a difficult time of times in the past when God has delivered us. Uh, Because I can think in my own life of plenty of times where I prayed and God answered prayers and he delivered me and... um, I'm sure you can as well. And so it's important to remind ourselves of those times. 
Because we tend to forget, we tend to pray, and then God will answer, and then we just tend to go on and sometimes even forget to thank God, and, and it just kind of slips our mind. So it's important to remind ourselves of these things. All right, verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. So if you think about Christ on the cross here, um, you see the humility of Christ, how he humbled himself and he was, uh, he endured all this suffering. And when I read this, I, I thought about Philippians um, 2, 7, and 8. And if you read uh, Philippians 2, 7, and 8, it talks about, in verse 7, Philippians 2, 7, it says, this is speaking of Christ, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so you see the humility of Christ and all that he endured. But then it goes on to talk about how God exalted him. In verse 9 it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Christ seems to compare himself to a worm because he was so humiliated and suffered so much and was so powerless it seemed at this moment on the cross. But we have to remember that after that came the glory that God would highly exalt him and that every knee would bow and confess him as Lord. I wanted to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon um, about the reproaches. You think about the taunts and the criticisms and the reproaches that he endured while he was on the cross. It, it was bad enough that he was suffering the physical death, but he was also enduring um, sneers and jeers and criticism and taunts from the crowd around him. And Charles Spurgeon says, Oh, the caustic power of reproach to those who endure it with patience, yet smart under it most painfully. So you know that the words that were spoken were uh, painful to Christ as well as the physical pain of dying on the cross. Um, two commentators, E.W. Bullinger and H.A. Ironside, uh, take this verse and they talk about the uh, tola worm. The Hebrew word here is tola for worm. And they talk about a, a worm in the Middle East that lives in a tree and is crushed for its red or crimson dye. And if you think about that, that's a picture of Christ on the cross. The tree being the cross and the red dye or the crimson dye being Christ's blood. And so that adds a whole new meaning to this word worm, if you think about it in that context. The word uh, tola for worm is also used in Isaiah 41.14. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Uh, so Jacob or Israel is referred to a worm in Isaiah um, 
It's also mentioned in Isaiah 66. It's also mentioned in Job and also in the book of Jonah. But that's just a powerful imagery there as we think about uh, this word worm. And uh, also as we think about that worm that lives in a tree and is used, they use it for the red dye. Uh, you can't help but think about Christ on the cross when you hear that. All right, let's go on to verses 7 and 8. Um, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip or they show contempt with their mouth. They shake the head saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. So here we see more insults and mocking. Um, Matthew 27 39 says, and they, and it says, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. So we see here, this is kind of another uh, mention of the scorn and the ridicule that he received on the cross. Um, and in verse 8, uh, it can refer to Matthew 27, verse 40 and 43. Uh, Matthew twenty seven forty through forty three says in saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him Deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So you see that language is very familiar. It sounds like verse 8 back in Psalm 22. And it's where they're mocking Jesus for trusting in God and and saying, well, you know, let God deliver him. So very uh, crude mocking and very um, vile words from these people around Christ on the cross. They're throwing insults at him. They're mocking him and and saying vile things to him. All that was prophesied here in Psalm 22. Um, I want to read another quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Here the taunt is cruelly aimed at the sufferer's faith in God, which is the tenderest point in a good man's soul, the very apple of his eye. So if you've ever been mocked by somebody for your faith in God, you know it can be very painful. And and sometimes they will mock you for believing in God and 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 mock your faith and, and say, Well, why doesn't God deliver you? That's that's very hard to take. And that's what they were doing to Jesus. They were mocking his faith in the Father, and they were wondering, you know, asking aloud, why doesn't God deliver him? not realizing that Christ had willingly laid down his life and it was necessary for him to die on the cross because there was a purpose for it. He was saving humanity. The the ironic and the sad thing is the people who were mocking him, he was dying to save them. And they didn't realize that. So Jesus suffered these cruel taunts from the people. You know, Jesus said in John 15, 18, that if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So Jesus kind of set a pattern here. The world hated him and the world hates his followers as well. 
2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live in... I'm sorry, let me start over. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So the, the Bible promises that believers will suffer persecution and will be hated by the world. I think sometimes that's left out today in Christianity, modern day Christianity. We tend to forget that uh, Jesus promised that the world would hate us and persecute us. All right, verses 9 and 10. Uh, but thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Of course, this thinks, this. Uh, as we read this, we probably think about Jesus as a baby. The Christmas story, him being born in the manger. We think about Mary, his mother. There's no mention of his father here, which... Uh, is interesting because we know that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and Mary was his his uh, earthly mother. Uh, but we know that Joseph was his earthly father, but, but Joseph was not biologically related to Jesus because God was his father. And so it's interesting that the father is not mentioned here. But as we read these verses, we think about God's care for Jesus from the time he was a baby. All right, moving to verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Uh, I want to read another Spurgeon quote. There are two fours, as though faith gave a double knock at mercy's gate. That is a powerful prayer which is full of holy reasons and thoughtful arguments. The nearness of trouble is a weighty motive for divine help. This moves our Heavenly Father's heart and brings down His helping hand. It is His glory to be our very present help in trouble. And so the two fours that he's referencing there is when in verse 11 it says, For trouble is near and for there is none to help. And Jesus is asking the Father to be near Him. And, you know, that's a prayer that, that we could pray be not far from us lord you know we want god to be close to us we want to feel his presence especially when trouble is near we need god to be near to us and oftentimes when we go through difficult times his presence is even more apparent and we feel him closer than ever before although he is always with us it seems like when we go through difficult times we feel him uh, more closely and and we're more aware of him All right, moving on to verses 12 and 13. It talks about bulls and the bulls of Bashan. Uh, now, the bulls may reference the Jewish leaders like the Pharisees, the priests, and the scribes who were very critical of Jesus and treated him very badly. Now, Bashan was a region east of the Jordan River. Um, the, the word Bashan means fruitful. And it's, it was a region on the east side of Jordan. It extended from the border of Gilead on the south to Mount Hermon on the north, uh, the Jordan Valley on the west to Salka, and the border of the Geshurites and the Maccathites on the east. Uh, and this, this area of Bashan was known for its well-fed cattle, the, their fat cattle. And so when he says the bulls of Bashan, have beset me round he's talking about these strong 
people are, you know, are being cruel to him. And he's probably referencing the Jewish leaders that persecuted him. He also mentions a, a ravening or a raging lion. Uh, and so you get the image of a lion, which is used quite a bit throughout the Psalms. And he mentions them opening their mouths at him. Uh, verse, thir- verse 13 in the NIV says, Roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. And so we, we see this uh, powerful imagery, and, and we, it's basically talking about how they're persecuting him with their words and, and with the hateful things they're saying to him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Very powerful imagery here. And this is referring to the crucifixion. Now, the, this, these words poured out, you get the idea of an offering. And Christ is pouring himself out as an offering. As a, you know, he's paying for our sins. And... Uh, so he's pouring himself out like an offering to God, a sin offering. Now, when it comes to crucifixion, there, from what I read, there's two ways that you can die, uh, two main ways that you die if you're crucified. One is by hypovolemic, let me see if I can pronounce this right, hypovolemic shock. And in that situation, fluid builds up around your heart. It's called a pericardial effusion. And fluid builds up around your heart. The second way is asphyxiation. You, you know, you uh, can't breathe. And a lot of times when people were crucified, because they had trouble breathing, they would try to push themselves up with their feet and try to get some air in their lungs. Or maybe they might pull themselves up with their hands and their wrist and try to to get more air into their lungs. And this is important because if you turn to John chapter 19, we're going to see why uh, this fluid around the heart, why that's important. But John 19.31, it says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith uh, true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Okay, so why did they break the legs of the two thieves on either side of Jesus? They they would break their legs so that they couldn't push themselves up and get more air. It, it basically hastened their death. As long as they were able to push themselves up with their legs and get more air, it would prolong the uh, crucifixion. 
But if they would break their legs, they wouldn't be able to do that and it would cause them to die sooner. So you see the cruel barbaric practice of, of crucifixion. It was really a cruel, very painful way to die. But when they came to Christ, they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. And so, and then they stuck a spear in his side and, and blood and water came out. Now, if he was in hypovolemic shock and he had this fluid around his heart, he had this pericardial effusion, then that may explain why water came out as well as blood. And it's interesting because blood is a symbol of redemption. You know, we are, our sins are paid for by the blood of Christ. So blood represents redemption and water represents life. If you think about the story of Moses and the water coming out of the rock as you know to provide water for the children of Israel, that water represented life. So you have blood, which is redemption. You have water, which is life. So Christ's death on the cross provides us redemption. It gives us forgiveness for our sins, but it also gives us life. We, we not only get forgiven, but we also receive the righteousness of, and life of Christ. So very powerful there, the imagery. If we go back to verse 14 in Psalm 22, uh, so this starts to make more sense. I'm poured out like water. We see the reason for the mention of water. Uh, All my bones are out of joint. You think about Christ hanging on the cross. His bones were not broken, but you could see how they might be out of joint, how he was stretched and and how his bones might have gotten out of joint as he hung on the cross. His heart is like wax. So that makes a lot more sense when you think about this fluid that built up around his heart and it, and it is melted in the midst of my bowels or melted within me. So uh, you start to understand this verse more in light of that context. Now, if we look at verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. So you see the thirst of Jesus. He, he's thirsty. His tongue is cleaving to his mouth and to his jaws. Uh, talks about being dried up like a pot shirt. And if we look at John uh, 19.28, we'll see the uh, parallel there. John 19.28 There it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So we see how he thirsted. And this goes along with verse 15 back in Psalm 22. All right, moving along to verse 16. It says, For dogs have compassed me, and the the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now dogs uh, were, they probably referred to Gentiles. The Jews would refer to Gentiles as dogs. A dog was an unclean animal to them, and Gentiles were unclean. And so you think about the dogs surrounding 
Jesus, he's probably referring to the Roman soldiers and, and the Romans that um, ha- were inflicting this pain upon him and crucifying him. But the amazing thing about verse 16 is that last part where it talks about they pierced my hands and my feet. That is a clear reference to the crucifixion. Um, it's hard to think about anything else when you read that. You know, piercing his feet on the cross and piercing his hands. And to think about this was a thousand years before uh, Christ died on the cross. David wrote this. And the Jews did not have crucifixion as a means of execution. That was a Roman form of execution. So this is a powerful prophecy of the the crucifixion a thousand years before it happened. Verse 17, uh, I may tell or I may count, or I can count all my bones. They look and stare upon me. You know, it's possible that Christ was so thin and emaciated at this point that he could see the bones through his skin. And that may be what it's referring to, that he, he could count his bones because his skin was so, uh, you know, he was, he was so thin and, and you could see the bones through his skin. They look and stare upon me. He was, you know, think about the, um, the lack of dignity and just the humiliation of the scene. You know, everyone was staring at him. Not only was he dying and going through this horrible pain and death and, and enduring these insults, but everyone was looking at him and staring at him. Uh, and he was, except for maybe a cloth around his, you know, a loincloth or something, he was naked. He didn't have clothes on. And so you think about the humiliation of this was very, uh, very profound. All right, verse 18, they part my garments or they divide my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture or for my clothing. Um, Now, if you know the story of of Jesus' death in the New Testament, you know what this is referring to. Uh, You know that the soldiers uh, cast lots for his clothing and divided them up amongst themselves. Uh, you can find this in Matthew 27, uh, 35, Mark 15, 24, Luke 23, 34, and John 19, 24. Uh, so that's where it talks about the soldiers um, casting lots or dice for his clothing. Now, Roman legal text, according to uh the King James Study Bible, Roman legal texts show that executioners had the legal right to claim uh, minor possessions of the accused. So you may wonder why they did this. Uh, It seems like unnecessarily cruel and just piling on the inhumanity of the whole situation. Uh, But apparently in Roman law, those that executed someone could take the clothing of the accused person. Uh, of course, we know Jesus was innocent, but uh, but they cast lots here for his clothing. All right, verse nineteen. Again, he calls out to help. Calls out for help from God. He says, "But be not far. I'm sorry, but be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me." Uh, this is similar to verse eleven, where he says, "Be not far from me." Uh, 
so again, he cries out for help. And again, we, he, we see Christ suffering and he wants God to be near him and to make haste to deliver him and to help him. In verse 20, he says, Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. That word darling can be translated precious life. Uh, the NIV says, Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Um, so again, he's just crying out to God for deliverance. Um, verse 21, he says, Save me from the lion's mouth. For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Now I want to talk a little about a little bit about the word unicorn. The King James Bible uses the word unicorn in, in various places, and a lot of people criticize this and say, Oh, see, the Bible's not true because uh, there's no such thing as unicorns. But it's important to understand the background to this. First of all, let me say that uh, the NIV and the New American Standard translate this wild ox, and the Dewey Rames, the Catholic Bible, translates unicorn rhinoceros, uh, I think, and it may be in Deuteronomy. Uh, but so this could probably be referring to either a wild ox or a rhinoceros. Now, the Hebrew word. Uh, that you know, unicorn in the it's not used obviously in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is reim, r e apostrophe e m, and it probably refers to a wild ox that has gone extinct. So this actual animal that the Hebrew word was referring to is probably extinct, but it might be similar to an Asian water buffalo. So then the question arises, why did the King James translators use the word unicorn? Well, uh, St. Jerome, when he translated his version of the Latin Vulgate, and he uh, used the Latin word unicornus, which means one-horned. It didn't necessarily mean a horse with one horn like we think of a unicorn. It just meant, the Latin word just meant one horn. And so when the King James translators came along, they basically made up a new English word. They translated, transliterated, I'm sorry, they transliterated that word from the Latin and made it unicorn. Similar to what they did with baptismo and baptism you know bab baptism in the king james or baptized in the king james is a transliteration of the word bab baptismo and there's a whole history behind that word too because baptism the the greek word baptismo means full water immersion but the king james translators didn't want to use the word immersion because they king james had been sprinkled and so they use this word um, baptize or baptism and it kind of is vague and not real specific. And so people can kind of read into it uh, what they want and that created confusion about what baptism is, whether it's sprinkling or immersion. But if you go back to the Greek word baptismo, it means immersion. It means full water immersion. Well, this word unicorn, they transliterated this Latin word and just kind of made up a new English word. But 
it probably refers to a wild ox that may have gone uh, extinct. So, just some interesting background information on that. So, let's go ahead and look at verse 22. Here's where the, we kind of turn a corner, and now we start talking about the resurrection part. Uh, verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Now, it's important to realize that this verse is quoted in Hebrews 2.12. And it refers to Christ in the midst of the church. And when he talks about my brethren, he's talking about the church. In the midst of the congregation, he's talking about the church. And so we, uh, Warren Worsby, when he looks at this psalm, he sees verse 22 kind of referencing the resurrection. Okay, Christ has died on the cross, but now we're talking about Christ in the church. And then in verses 23 through 26, we see Christ amongst Israel because it mentions uh, Jacob. Verse 23, Ye that fear the Lord, praise him, all ye the seed of Jacob. Glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. Um, so we see a call to fear God and to praise him. And in verse 24, For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. I want to read another Spurgeon quote here on this verse. I thought it was pretty good. He says, It shall never be said that any man's affliction or poverty prevented his being an accepted suppliant at Jehovah's throne of grace. The meanest applicant is welcome at mercy's door. None that approach his throne shall find a God unfaithful or unkind. So we look at this verse 24. And basically I think what it's saying is that God doesn't despise those that are hurting and that come to him. You know, And, they, and I think it's in Isaiah it says a bruised reed shall he not break or not quench. Uh, so God has compassion upon the afflicted, those that are hurting. And someone earnestly seeks God and, and cries out to him. God has compassion on that person. He will hear. That's what this verse is saying. So it's a very encouraging verse. Verse 25 talks about praising God in the great congregation and paying my vows before them that fear him. Uh, so we see here the importance of public worship, uh, not just praising God individually, but praising God in the great congregation. Verse 26 says, The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. I want to read one more Charles Spurgeon quote here. He says about this verse, The spiritually poor find a feast in Jesus. They feed upon him to the satisfaction of their hearts. They were famished until he gave himself for them, but now they are filled with royal dainties. The thought of the joy of his people gave comfort, comfort to our expiring Lord. So what he's saying there is as Christ was dying on the cross, he was thinking about how his death was going to benefit those that would believe in him. And it brought joy to Christ to think about this. And it talks about how that those that come to Christ and believe in him, the meek, the humble, they will be satisfied. Um, you know, in Psalm 107.9, it says, For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. And so 
uh, and the word meek means humble, submissive, or gentle. So those that come to Christ humbly, they will not be turned away empty. They will be satisfied. God will satisfy their longing soul and fill their hungry soul with goodness. And that is possible because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. All right, verse 27. Uh, there we have... Um, it says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Warren Worsby believes that verses 27 through 31 are speaking about the Gentiles. And this is talking about, okay, taking the good news of the gospel to the whole world. Um, so Christ amongst the Gentiles. Uh, and actually, I said that last quote from Charles Spurgeon was the last one, but I have one more for you. Uh, on this verse 27, Charles Spurgeon says, Out from the inner circle of the present church, the blessing is to spread in growing power until the remotest parts of the earth shall be ashamed of their idols, mindful of the true God, penitent for their offenses, and unanimously earnest for reconciliation with Jehovah. So we see here the gospel taken to the whole world and all the world uh, learning of Christ and what he's done. The Bible says that Christ will rule on the throne of David in the millennial kingdom. Uh, if we look at verse 28, it says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. So, you know, Christ said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So uh, we're to pray. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we, we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So we look forward to the kingdom of Christ that is to come. And then, in fact, is already here in our hearts. And it, it says that Christ is the governor or the ruler among the nations. The Bible says he shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. So Christ will rule over the entire world as he sits on the throne of David. And then it goes on to talk about those uh, that are fat or rich. Uh, it says, All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. So rich or poor, all will come to Christ and, and worship him, serve him. And we see this picture of Christ uh, ruling over the entire world. Uh, verse 30, A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. Um, the NIV there says posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. So we see here a future picture of the spread of the gospel, of Christ's kingdom, and of Christ ruling on his throne. Uh, verse 31, They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he had done this. Declare his righteousness. So spread the news, spread the word about what Christ has done, that he is the rightful king and about how he died on the cross and was raised again. So spreading the good news of the gospel. And I find what, what's very interesting about this verse is it says, unto a people that shall be born. So these are people, when this was written, that had not been born yet. So future generations will serve him and future generations will do this. Um, and 
As we know, the gospel was not just taken to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And the Jews could not have imagined that at this time. That was kind of beyond their understanding. But eventually the, the gospel is taken to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And then it ends with saying that he had done this. And that kind of reminds me of what it says in John nineteen thirty, where it says, it is finished. When Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. You know, our sins have been paid for. The work on the cross is, is done. It is finished. And uh, I've heard preachers preach on this, and they, they talk about how uh, the Greek word for this, uh, and I can't remember exactly how to pronounce it, but when, whenever someone had a debt, they would write this word, you know, in Greek, it is finished on there. And it meant that that debt was paid. And so when Christ died on the cross, he paid the debt of our sins. It is finished. So this is just a wonderful psalm uh, that we, as we reflect upon uh, what Christ has done for us and the salvation that he has bought for us. And as we think about this psalm, you can't read Psalm 22 as a Christian without thinking about Christ on the cross. I mean, there's just no way around it. It's, it's clear, especially when it talks about they have pierced my hands and my feet. And so we, we see a clear prophecy of the crucifixion in this psalm. And so as we read this, I think it should do two things at least for us. One is it should make us aware of the sufferings of Christ. We see how much Christ suffered. We see the love of God that he would send his son uh, to pay for our sins. And that if we would believe in Jesus, that if we would receive him and call upon him, that we can be saved. And so we see the love of God. We see the suffering of Christ. And then two, it should make us grateful for the salvation that God has given us through Christ and everything that Christ has done for us. We should be very grateful after reading this psalm. Well, I hope you enjoyed Psalm 22, and I hope it's a blessing to you. And uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at Psalm 23. I've been looking forward to that. Psalm 23, obviously one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible, and I've really been looking forward to doing that one. So I hope you have a wonderful week. May God richly bless you. Thank you.